Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Gosh, you're high up, aren't you? <laughs> um, it is a lovely lecture theatre, and I'm sure you'll be able to see very well here as we go through the lecture. Firstly, can I say thank you very much to Ian and indeed to all the organisers um, of this uh, lecture series. It is a, a real honour to be invited to address you um, for the bicentenary celebrations of the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and to be able to show you lots of artwork, a very unusual subject, and I was hoping the title might entice you. Um, if you don't know where the hungry lions, the kangaroos and the bruised reeds are going to come from, you will in 45 minutes, so that's the good news. This is an image, as you can see, of the Royal Edinburgh Asylum and the West House. I wonder when the asylum opened if those who helped to construct it and create it had any idea of its illustrious history. It began, of course, as an asylum for paying patients, but the demand for um, confinement was such that by 1842, another building called the West House, now McKinnon House, was built and constructed to uh, accommodate the um, pauper patients. These two buildings were to be the centre of a revolution in psychiatry, the development of moral management and moral treatment. Robert Ferguson and his death very suddenly in Edinburgh's Bedlam was one of the incentives for the construction of the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. And the conditions in Edinburgh's Bedlam were just as bad as they were in London's counterpart. As early as 13, uh, 1735, William Hogarth is uh, producing images of what it was like in 1735, you could pay your sixpence, and on a Wednesday afternoon, you could have real entertainment, some scares, some thrills, and some laughs as you went to uh, Bethlehem to have a look at the patients. And that's what's happening with two of the ladies just in the background of Hogarth's image here. Tom Rakewell in the Rake's Progress has spent all his money, and his last image is him insane, on the ground, chained up. And that's what conditions were like at that time. By 1770, Bethlehem had closed its doors to paying visitors or voyeurs. Um, but the conditions hadn't necessarily improved. By 1814, when commissioners go round to inspect the asylum, they come across William Norris, chained up, as you can see, to a pole by his bedside here, um, a shocking image. So conditions like that were something that had to be stopped. And the asylum in Edinburgh was a one way of doing that, pro providing much better facilities for those with mental illness. 
Two of the stimulants towards this movement were Pinel and Esquirol, Pinel at La Salpetriere, who unchained the insane, part of the Enlightenment and part of revolutionary Europe at that time, the idea that the insane might just be cured if there was medical intervention, if there was an understanding of mental diseases, and that's what Pinel pioneered. But at the same time, nearer to home at the York Retreat, we found William Chuke, um, the great Quaker, who decides to establish an asylum, not just for Quakers, principally so, but then it was extended out to all the community, to provide a more genteel, a caring, humane environment where patients were encouraged to behave as they had behaved in society, where the establishment could be seen as one that helped recuperation rather than simply confinement and hidden from society. So that's the background to what's happening at the Royal Edinburgh Asylum. The first two superintendents who are resident in the asylum are William McKinnon and David Skay, and between them, they establish it as this great moral treatment uh, building. Work, exercise, and diet are part of the foundations of moral management rather than moral treatment. The patients were encouraged to do work wherever possible. They could work in the garden if it was appropriate. They could work in the laundry for the ladies if they were so inclined. They could do sewing, embroidery, or they could be um, employed in all sorts of ways. But activity was thought as a stimulant and a diversion against their mental illnesses. Their exercise, physical um, ailments could be improved by exercise and, of course, diet. And it was one of the many asylums at that time that published the diet that was given out to the patients. Along with that, though, we get this wonderful variety of activities, particularly as we move into the 40s and 50s. Excursions, picnics, bathing, fishing, um, sports like curling and cricket and bowls, all these are provided to patients, whether they are paying or pauper. There are patients' balls. These are divided according to whether you're patient or pauper. But concerts were enjoyed by all the patients. And theatrical productions as well. Music, drawing, all these games were uh, advertised and were enjoyed. There are lists of how many patients took part in all of these. Against that, we've got educational classes, we've got lectures, they go to exhibitions either outside the asylum or actually exhibitions within the asylum. Scientific demonstrations, there's so much going on. Magic Lantern, or in America it's called the Magic Lanthorn, becomes the most popular activity in the wintertime when it wasn't so easy to go outside. Um, these are on, so it's really a slideshow not far removed from what I'm going to show you today. All this is going on on top of a printing press. The Morningside Mirror is established. That's the magazine or journal produced by the patients from 1845. A literary club, first of all, called the Library Club from 1859. So there's so much going on, you might be forgiven for thinking this isn't an asylum, but rather a very nice upmarket hotel or residence. 
But of course, there is the other side to this, remembering that the patients all are suffering from different types of mental illness. So I want to look at the art that is encouraged, fostered, and created in that kind of cultural, moral treatment environment. And we are so fortunate for the Edinburgh patients to have a very strong record of what some of them did. I'm only going to mention a few of the patients and show you a, a few examples of their art. But it's important to see this as a key collection. The collection is dispersed amongst various sites, but they show very clear evidence of patient art activity. And you may have spotted a lion and a kangaroo already, so you may know where they're going to come from. The men that created the collections were really the first two, or the second, I should say, second and third superintendents, David Skay and Thomas Clouston, but also Thomas Laycock, the professor of practice of medicine at the university, was, all, it was key and instrumental to acquiring and developing collections of illustrations, diagrams, for their own teaching purposes. And some of the art I'm going to show you is designed specifically for that. So what kind of thing are we going to look at? Well, this is the only lady uh, artist patient from Royal Edinburgh Asylum that I'm going to show you. This is a self-portrait, part of a larger drawing, and it's of Mrs. Flora Manson. She was the wife of a lighthouse keeper. She suffered when she came into the asylum from slight mental aberration, but that developed fairly quickly in the case records into dementia. But she was one of the happy dements. She was pleased and happy, but with many delusions. But at least she didn't cause trouble. She was one of the pleasant uh, patients to have. And um, she was just allowed to get on with her various activities. She didn't disturb um, the, the, t uh, the feelings within the asylum at all. In 1854, her course notes, uh, course notes record that much of her time is spent in writing what she terms novels, which seem to be consisting of events in her own life. And so let me show you the full part of the drawing. This is a drawing here. It is of Flora Manson and of her friend Isabella MacDonald. Isabella MacDonald had uh, come in as the wife of a labourer and she was a domestic servant and she suffered from acute mania. But the two ladies shared a ward together and they obviously became friends. This is the only drawing we have by Flora Manson and it's one of my favourites. And this is where the story gets complicated and you have to pay attention. There's a test at the end. Um, this drawing is by an Edinburgh Asylum patient and it shows two Edinburgh Asylum patients, but it's not in Edinburgh. It's part of the Crichton collection developed by Dr. Brown, and I'll mention that very shortly. Um, this is her with her narratives. She gives the location, Morningside Asylum, Edinburgh. She gives the date of it as well. And then she even shows Dr. Skay who was superintendent there, uh, and as assistant both with bad hairdo days, I think. What about lady art, uh, artists? Are there many in there? Flo uh, Flora Manson was not a professional artist. She was like many of the patients who produced art. She was an amateur. 
This was the way she wished to express herself, and art was a form of therapeutic activity for her. We have very few examples by lady artists anywhere in British uh, psychiatric collections at all, but Crichton is the exception where we have, we know at least 10 artists, patients who were active in drawing. Um, ladies such as Joanna Hutton, who was the wife of a minister, she had come in when she was already in her 60s and she produced a series of very small drawings of flowers and of birds from Jardine's Book of Ornithology. Um, and she gave these out to patients and to the physician when she liked them and when she quarreled with them, she asked for them back according to the case notes. And quite right too. Um, and Marianne Rigby, who was a governess from Liverpool. By this time, these are Crichton patients. They're coming all the way from Liverpool, and indeed they come from the Isle of Wight up to Crichton because of its formidable reputation. Um, and she was encouraged to do art. She was morbidly shy. Whenever a man came into the room, she would go into the corner, turn her back, and would not address him frontally at all. But she produced some beautiful artwork, uh, such as the, the image on the extreme right there. And very bizarrely, Dr. Brown must have given her the volumes of annual reports of other asylums. The physicians at this time exchanged these with asylums uh, elsewhere in Scotland, in England, and indeed abroad in America. We get quite a number of those appearing. This happens to be Somerset County Asylum. So that's what the kind of thing she's doing. So how common is art activity in asylums? Well, the reality is it's much more common than you might have thought. And I've spent the last few years examining the um, case notes and the annual reports of many asylums, both uh, European and American, to try and work this out. Pinel at Bicetra is one of the first to record two of his patients who were professional artists who came into the asylum and tried to do art, but both of them were very un unsuccessful. Their minds were um, too confused. At Cork Lunatic Asylum, as early as 1810, William Halloran, the superintendent, is recording uh, an artist who comes in and is very demented for a while and then encouraged by the staff in the asylum to do art, and he is cured through that. He does some portraits, and they work out very well. And he ends his days, apparently, as a well-known portrait painter in London, although he doesn't name him, and we don't know how true that actually is. But we also get Glasgow Royal uh, Asylum in their annual reports recording activities. Berlin, as early as 1820, has drawing tables and uh, drawing lessons for the various patients. And so we go on. Um, we'll mention Bethlehem in a second. In America, the very first instance I've come across, and I've been doing the research this summer, is the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane by 1842. And many of the early institutions in America were Quaker institutions, so it shouldn't be surprising if art doesn't appear right at the beginning, because the Quakers were not for art certainly not on the walls of their houses. Um, and they had very restricted uh, views of what art should do and how it should serve the community. 
In Bethlehem, though, we have some of the best-known examples of patient art. We've got Jonathan Martin, whose younger brother, John Martin, became a great landscape and narrative painter. Huge paintings like The Great Day of His Wrath in Tate um, is a good example. Jonathan Martin um, was born in the north of England, and he was in two asylums before he tried to burn down York Minster. <coughs> in 1829, on the 1st of February. He was caught, arrested, but found to be insane, and he was sent to Bethlehem. And almost immediately, we know he started drawing. Um, in his last year there, just before he died, he'd got permission to draw a little, writes his son, and he began with eagerness. In a short time, he had covered a large sheet of drawing paper with a serpent, lines, archer shooting, and other things. And these are the kind of drawings that have been preserved, only a few of them, a handful, in the Bethlehem archives. But they are some of the earliest works by any patient in an asylum in Britain. And perhaps more famously, the case of Richard Dad. Richard Dad um, in 1843 took his father to Cobham Park in Surrey and took out a, a knife that he had just recently acquired and slit his father's throat and then stabbed him to death. He ran away to France, was apprehended there because he tried to attack someone else there, was brought back, found to be criminally insane and was um, put into Bethlehem in 1844, and he stayed there till 1864 and the opening of Broadmoor Asylum for Criminal Lunatics, and he was transferred there and eked out his days there till 1886. During his time both at Bethlehem and Broadmoor, he was very fortunate in those who looked after him, and they encouraged him to produce art. He had come out of the Royal Academy schools as a young man, full of promise, seen as one of their most uh, exciting students. But it was not to be. And um, when he was uh, placed in Bethlehem, the, the journals of the day said, well, we'll forget about him. There's no point in thinking of him. The grave has covered over him, and we will not see him produce art again. And that just wasn't the case. Some of the most famous works, and uh, one work in particular, the portrait of Alexander Morrison, very closely associated with uh, the college here. Alexander Morrison, one of the great pioneers of early psychiatry, um, was also the visiting physician to Bethlehem, and it was on his retirement in 1852, because they were about to appoint a resident physician, that he probably asked um, Richard Dad to do this portrait of him, and provided him through his daughter with a drawing of his house in Leith, and through perhaps one of the photographs by Helen Adamson of the New Haven fishwives that you can see here. His most famous work, though, is down in Tate, uh, Britain, which is the Fairy Feller's masterstroke, one that he did really right up over a period of almost 10 years prior to his departure for Broadmoor. But let's get back to Edinburgh patients, and it does get complicated, so don't even think of blinking for a second, because you will have missed a train of thought that's going on here. One of the loveliest is William Bartholomew. We know his dates, born in 1819, and he died in 1881. He was confined, first of all, in Royal Edinburgh Asylum in a period 
from 1849 to 53, but he seems to have come out of the asylum at least twice, perhaps three times, because there is a confusion in some of his records. But we know he was in for at least six months, and then another period of 16 months. He first came in at the age of 30, Intemperance was the cause of his problems, suffering from acute mania with hallucinations and delirium tremens, something that he feared subsequently all his life. He was terrified that he would have to experience that again. He was very well educated, trained as a hatter and as an engraver, and that is key to our understanding of his artwork. He was trained in the art of engraving. Michael Barfoot um, has done a, a wonderful job in researching him and finding out about his family. He is one of the Bartholomews, the map makers uh, from Edinburgh. But his story as an artist in the asylum begins in his next period of confinement when at his own request he is admitted to Crichton Royal Institution in Dumfries. Now, he may have done art in his earlier days when he was in Royal Edinburgh Asylum, but there's no record of it. However, when he moves to Crichton, he's going to be here um, really from 1853 to 55, and then he's readmitted again from 56 to 77. Um, intemperance is the problem, and he doesn't want that delirium tremens, so he's a voluntary patient. This is Crichton, a lovely view of Crichton. And he was, depending on how much his uh, uh, family was able to pay, sometimes a paying patient, therefore staying in Crichton Royal Institution, that building that still survives today. But sometimes when the family didn't have enough money, he would be a pauper patient in the Southern Counties Asylum, this building that no longer exists, that was constructed in 1849 principally for the pauper patients. And its location was just behind here, um, uh, we can't see it, but it was just behind here, uh, very close, uh, 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 a minute's stroll from Crichton Royal Institution itself. Almost immediately comes to Crichton, the physician superintendent, Dr. William Alexander Francis Brown, records him as possessing very considerable artistic talents and dexterity. This is Dr. Brown here, and he was one of the great pioneers of Scottish psychiatry, and he was fascinated by art. He is the one who forms this massive collection that still exists today, at least in part, 134 drawings by patients, most of them from the Crichton Royal Institution themselves, but a few from other institutions as well. In 1855, in the annual report, he's recording William Bartholomew drawing in chalk a great number of these portrait illustrations for his own series of lectures that he delivered both to the asylum staff and occasionally to patients whom he thought might be interested in it in the study of mental diseases. So he commissioned a series of these drawings. We believe there were originally 55, but again, it's Mike Barfoot um, and Morag Williams, who was the former archivist at Crichton Royal Institution and the, uh, uh, the Dumfries and Galloway Health Board, who worked together to discover 
and identify some of these drawings. Mike Barfoot found them in the Edinburgh University Library collections, but wasn't sure who the patients were or what, what the SCA stood for on the back, but Morag Williams was able to say straight away that's the Southern Counties Asylum. So these were the ones that were done. In terms of size, if you imagine a full-size newspaper opened up and turned on its side, these are just very slightly bigger than those. So you can imagine if I was lecturing to you, perhaps in a smaller room than here, and they were hanging up behind me, you would probably still be able to see them very clearly. They are of a very strong linear style, which is exactly what Bartholomew was trained to do. He's an engraver by trade. He's used to black and white and making images very clear and sharp. And these are all patients from the Southern County Asylum whom Bartholomew would have known. They were in the building that he was occupying. And we have sometimes their uh, names on uh, the back, so we know who the patients are. At some point, they enter the collections of Dr. Thomas Laycock. Now, ideas of illustrating the insane are, of course, not new. We have Charles Bell, who introduces two of his own drawings in his book on the anatomy of expression in painting. We've got Esquirol, who uses a professional artist to make study of patients, his own patients, for his publication in 1838, The Maladie Mentale. And Morrison's The Physiognomy of Mental Diseases, uh, and we have the original drawings uh, to illustrate this book here in the College uh, Library, a fascinating collection indeed. Um, he employs three different artists to do 108 drawings that still exist um, that were used for his publication. But most of these drawings are done by professional artists. It is not common for patients to be drawing other patients. I have no earlier example than those to show you by Bartholomew. And indeed, this is the era of photography. And Dr. Hugh Welch Diamond, very famously at Surrey County Asylum, will produce a paper in 1856 connecting the idea of photography and creating images, lasting images of very realistic ones of the various patients. These are very uh, famous images. I'm sure many of you have seen them. This, of course, is Dr. Diamond. He's not one of the patients uh, here. But um, the idea of looking and understanding the physiognomy of the insane was a key development at that time. So back to um, um, Bartholomew's drawings. Here we've got the names just to show you who these people were, all suffering from different types of illness, and we know that from their various case notes. They have little ribbons. I wonder if you can see the wee ribbons. Do you see that there? That's a silk ribbon, silk tie. So they would be suspended maybe from a, a pin or a nail um, and they would hang down. But they are absolutely wonderful works of art. There's nothing like this um, produced before that we know about. Whether Brown held on to them right until the point where in 1870 he became blind and could no longer use them and then handed them over to Thomas Laycock, or whether when he stopped um, lecturing um, just after 1866 uh, and then decided to hand them over to Laycock, we really don't know. But there's certainly in Laycock's collection when those are given over to University Library in 1876. 
These are some of the other uh, various ladies. So we have male and female patients who are all being drawn. I have no idea, I'm sure someone will want to know, if these ladies gave permission and the gentleman gave permission for them to be drawn. We have no such record of this at all. Bartholomew doesn't just do these formal um, portraits for lectures. He also does the informal drawings of some of his fellow patients. Some of them he gets to know quite well. Galloway and Dumfries, sorry. Da Galloway and Dumfries here, nicknames given to two patients who came obviously from these two areas. Um, and he names some of the patients um, as he goes along. So he produces this kind of thing. He also produces... Uh, work alongside a huge number of male patients. Um, from the Crichton collection, we have 46 male, male patients recorded as doing art, but probably far more than that. And he's there at the most stimulating time when Brown is forming his art collection and encouraging art, particularly in the 1850s. So we have got a dozen um, sketches and drawings still surviving by David Cathcart. But originally, there were thousands of them. He had been a patient in Glasgow Asylum. He came to Crichton, um, and he stayed in Crichton for the rest of his life. And both in Glasgow and in Crichton, you get the superintendents complaining that they can hardly get into his room because he's filled the room with these pieces of paper and jotter drawings of endless battles and victories that he has won, mainly against the Russians. Um, he was very much against the Russians. But we have Joseph Askew as well, who came from Whitehaven in Cumbria, doing his own very naive style of paintings, absolutely beautiful, that are inspired and are meant to be copies of uh, prints that were to be found in the journals of the day, particularly the art journal. So he was in an environment where art was done by amateurs and professionals. William James Blacklock overlaps with him. He was a professional artist um, from Cumwhitton, and he exhibits at the Royal Academy for a number of years before illness overtakes him. And this is him, while he's in the asylum, producing the loveliest image in the Crichton Collection. Beautiful view of Craig Miller Castle. And the quality of this watercolour is quite outstanding and quite different, really, from everything else that's produced in the surviving collection. But we also have drawings by him. He comes in already very ill in 1855, and he declines rapidly through general paralysis. Um, and he dies in the asylum. And we find that Laycock is very interested in the decline in his abilities, mental abilities, uh, as his mind and his body just close down. So some of his drawings as examples of the memory and intellectual capacities reducing dramatically are still in the archives here, and this is one of them. Bartholomew also does these lovely and very, very clever uh, drawings. They're usually in uh, black ink um, and with pen. And this is cake month, I just call it. I love the idea of a month dedicated to cake. That's really something we should uh, institute um, as a, a Scottish tradition. 
all these ideas are all blended together. They all seem muddled, confused, and that's what the case records show for him. So he's producing this in December 1861, and this is the real Bartholomew, leaving to his own musings, and this is what he produces. Very clever, very um, stylized, but utterly confusing. He could do things that were perfectly normal, and you wouldn't expect them to be by a, a patient at all. This is Bartholomew's Forgive, Bless, Shade and a Christmas Hymn. Music sheets, their pen and ink, and the, the intricate penmanship is absolutely outstanding, really beautiful. Not a mistake in it at all. He's even reproducing a Raphael image here of the Sistine Madonna. Uh, absolutely beautiful. And this is the kind of thing he could do if he was requested to do it. So he continues to produce art and then he moves back to get us back into the story of the Royal Edinburgh Asylum on the 16th of November 1877 and will remain here until his death in June 1881. And what we have in the records is a whole series of these uh, notebooks in which he just sketches images. Sometimes they're on one page, sometimes as here, we've got two pages, very like cake month, black and white on the whole, and lots of uh, drawings and text intermingled. If you're looking at these and you fully understand them, can I suggest you need some help? Um, but they are wonderful images, just him allowed to carry on with his art. He's described by this time as a quiet, uh, going old gentleman, a chronic maniac, there was no cure for his illness, slightly talkative, incoherent frequently. And that incoherence is transferred into his artwork. He does sketches even around 1880 to 81, when he has left Crichton of the superintendent's house, which he would have seen from his wards or his walks round the grounds regularly. He mentions Magdalene Brown as well here. Um, and this, you can see, is a portrait of her. It's very interesting to look at his drawings and then the portraits emerge out of them. And this is nothing like the architecture of Brown's house, I should say. We, that building still stands and it doesn't look like this, but um, it's got bedrooms delineated, the uh, living room and so on. He also produces a very large chart, the Edinburgh Review, for Christmas and the date is almost completely obscured, but it is actually for January 1881. The date appears elsewhere on this, where he's divided Edinburgh and Edinburgh society, where you've got the really intellectual people and the well-behaved, refined people near the top with love, um, and then down below, we've got the sinful people, um, the barrels representing all the taverns and inns in Edinburgh. So Rose Street, I'm sure, was represented there. Um, I, it's very confusing. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's lovely to see it. This is him expressing his own ideas um, and allowed to do so freely. And finally, let's show you from, for Bartholomew his notebook sketches where the lion and the kangaroo appear. This is my favorite drawing by him, and is colored as well. It's produced only three days before he died. And it's just the same as all the others. The more you look at it, the cleverer it gets. Faces appear, 
Um, sometimes this is regarded as one face, that eye part of this, but that eye is also part of this face. It says at the top, the lions young, they hungry be. That's why I mentioned hungry lions. And a kangaroo, which we'd be used to seeing, but probably was quite a novelty in Edinburgh at that time, an Australian uh, kangaroo, a marsupial, he tells us, is on top here. Um, very clever, a face here and fingers uh, down below. It's a beautiful image, very confusing, with lots of references to Edinburgh. And so right up to the moment of his death, he is still producing wonderful works of art. In contrast to the body of work that we have by Bartholomew, we have virtually nothing by Robert Keir except a handful of drawings. And by the time he comes in, in 1878, the asylum is very busy. It's got between 800 and 900 inmates. So there's very little time for the superintendent to write detailed notes. So his notes are very limited and restricted. He's in the asylum for eight years. He comes in on the 6th of July, 1878, at the age of 22. And he's an architect, and he's a pauper patient. He comes from the area of St. Cuthbert's. He's suffering from religious excitement and overstudy. And I can't emphasize enough how many times this, uh, the case notes tell you about patients who have overstudied. Um, that is a very, very common complaint. That's an explanation of why they just become obsessed with their work and they don't sleep and they don't eat properly and they probably drink as well. He was confused and depressed, but he wasn't dangerous. So he was a, a patient who was just allowed to get on with his life and there was a hope of cure, but there wasn't necessarily the cure. When he first came in, he believed he was specially ordained to draw a plan of the Temple of Jerusalem. He believed that God had instructed him uh, as a prophet to do this drawing um, for God's chosen people. And it records he has nearly finished his drawing. His drawing doesn't exist, but he does do drawings um, of architectural uh, uh, features and of some beautiful buildings, lovely drawings, which are very delicately done. This one has an attachment on it, a, a note from Dr. Cluston to whoever he had given it. We don't know who that is. From the uh, 9th of July, 1879, uh, I should say, attached to the sketches, I wish to study them and take care of them. Um, so we know that Clouston was certainly saving these drawings. This is another one, probably his best one and best preserved. You can see the edges of it is somewhat tattered. Uh, an architectural drawing of June or July 1879. Uh, by August, he's recorded as making sketches and plans for a cottage at Craig House and seemed to be brighter and better altogether. And by April 1886, much later, because he then relapses and then he gets better and relapses again, he is discharged, relieved, but much enfeebled mentally. We don't know how much more drawing he did. We only have these few drawings from the 1879 period. Then we come to John Miles, whose name can be spelled M-I-L-E-S, but certainly when he is exhibiting at the Royal Scottish Academy, which he does from 1850 intermittently to 1873, he spells it M-Y-L-E-S. So that's the spelling I'm going to use today. 
He was uh, an artist who was predominantly portrait, but he also did narratives. He was fairly flexible in that. And he had some success, the fact that he exhibited numerous times with the RSC. He was confined, however, in Royal Edinburgh Asylum on the 21st of May 1881 at the age of 59. And by this time, whatever wealth he had acquired through his art had been squandered through drink. He was suicidal, he had attempted to swallow paraffin and had been saved. He came in depressed and delusional. And for the next few years, we see him constantly in his very brief case notes, um, moving from one ward to another, to a refractory ward when he became violent and unsettled, and then allowed to return to the ward, which was much, much more peaceful, um, when he had returned to better health and he could control his, um, uh, um, his behavior. Uh, and this was very common activity at the time. And then suddenly, out of the blue, 1st of October, 1882, we get this message in the case notes, Miles has recovered. He remembers nothing of his late illness. He paints in oils and reads classical books and is well-versed in ancient mythology. And this is the only reference to the fact that he does artwork, he paints in oils. Now, these two pictures were uh, pictures he exhibited at the Royal Scottish Academy. These were not done in the asylum. What was done in the asylum um, was a series of these drawings, and we have two sets of drawings. There's a book with 13 drawings here in the library of the college. And then we have seven drawings in the Lothian Health Services archive within the Thomas Clouston papers. And they should match up, and sometimes they do, but not exactly. Um, and we just really don't know what's happened uh, with these drawings. So he, here is an example of the bruised reeds. The volume that is here in the college library is bound and on the front is the title Bruised Reeds and inside is this wa uh, watercolour, pen and ink watercolour uh, sketch of the reeds themselves with the bird um, and the, the various scene is set for that. The reference to the fact that the body and the mind are bruised, are damaged and need to be allowed peace and quiet to heal again. And he does a series of these drawings. Now, my own interpretation, and Ian may well disagree with me, um, about these is that as an artist, he would be allowed freedom just to draw what he likes. He may well have been commissioned by Clouston to do drawings of his fellow patients. He stayed in the 8th male gallery, and the 8th MG is written above many of the drawings. These were fellow patients, patients who shared the same space as him. And I would, uh, I would suggest to you that the drawings that look like this within the college collection are the first ones that he did. And I think they must have been commissioned because if they hadn't been, why would he leave space at the bottom for text to be written, whether that text is written by him, dictated by Clouston, or by Clouston himself is not clear. But he leaves specifically this space below for some text uh, to be um, mentioned. This is one of the drawings from the Thomas Clouston papers. 
and it shows the same patient but is very much tidied up and is much more a finished work of art. As an artist, Miles would have regarded this one as a sketch, a preparatory sketch. This, you can see, it's tidied up not just in, his, uh, in Ar William Archibald's um, dress, it, he's looking much tidier, but even the bench he's on is much neater, and we've got panelling or perhaps wallpaper in the back there where we've just got the plain whitewashed walls um, in the back of this. So there are going to be differences between them. Let me show you this. This is George uh, Dixon, who was a joiner and had been ill for quite uh, some time. Um, he can't have been a very nice man because he is accused of throwing his wife out a window the day after his marriage, which seems a bit extreme. Uh, at least leave it for a bit longer than that before you decide you're not suited to each other. But what's interesting here is this drawing shows him clean-shaven, and this drawing, his hair is shorter, whiter, and uh, uh, he's got a beard uh, and moustache here. Um, George Dixon is represented in a way here in a much tidier format. Again, it's got this wallpapered or panelled background um, setting for it. And it does seem as if a certain number of days must have elapsed between the original sketch, preparatory sketch, and the finished work of art. Here we have Andrew uh, Sis, uh, Simpson here, and these two are very similar in their formats. There's hardly any difference to them. Even the stool that he's on is virtually the same. And um, patient George Lumsden here, who was blind, um, he was epileptic, and he was a dement, and he had musical talent. So here he is playing his fiddle, and we hear very often in the case notes um, of the, the asylums, patients who could uh, play, and they would be uh, the entertainers. Sometimes they'd be allowed to play, and people doing their needlework or doing their uh, activities in the laundry or something would be able to hear this, and it would be um, something therapeutic and enjoyable. Um, so he may well have gone round the wards and entertained the other patients um, with his skills. These are similar as well. Um, these uh, here he's moved from a chair to this settee here. Um, and uh, he is a paralytic idiot, um, it's called. And this one down uh, here is covering himself up in the original drawing, but it sounds like Clouston has said, no, we need to see what he's doing. Come the finished drawing, um, he is an excited masturbator. And there are some drawings, one of the finished works that doesn't have a preparatory sketch, uh, still surviving, but lots of preparatory sketches of patients um, who are not in the Edinburgh University Library collection. So there's a whole range of them. This man, I think, is lovely. You see him as holding his teacup. It says in his description that he will do anything for a cup of tea. <laughs> so uh, quite a character. Finally, I want to just mention John Willis Mason. Um, he is the one whose artwork survives um, most completely. Um, some wonderful work, but not just art. He does uh, so much of his writing. We've got his letters, notebooks, scrapbooks, drawings, his contributions to the Morningside Mirror, which were voluminous. Um, 
Michael Barfoot and Alan Beveridge, neither of whom can be here today, um, wrote a fascinating lengthy paper describing um, his time in Royal Edinburgh Asylum and his whole history, in fact. But at the time of publication in 1993, not all of his drawings had come to light. John Willis Mason was born in Midlothian. He was trained as an insurance agent, and that comes through in many of his writings throughout the rest of his life. And from this list, I won't go through it completely, but as you can see, he was confined in various asylums, from Millholm Asylum in Musselburgh, originally in March uh, 1864. He comes to Royal Edinburgh Asylum. Two years later, he's coming to Crichton. Then he's back in Royal Edinburgh Asylum. Then he goes to Montrose Asylum only for a few months before they say, no, I think it's time you went back to Edinburgh. He is one of the very difficult patients. And you can see what I'm, uh, um, the records are showing that, that he can be violent, sometimes dangerous. And that's the story of the rest of his life. Um, he is moved around as many patients were when they were very difficult. Often the family were requested maybe to send him to a different asylum. Maybe that would, be, it would help to recuperate him. Um, in reality, it was often the superintendents and staff had said, really, you know, we cannot deal with this man. But he eventually will end his days in Royal Edinburgh Asylum. So he originally comes um, there. Um, in 1864. Mason has a whole variety of artwork for us to see, but I'll just show you a sample of them. This is sketches um, that were done by him for Morrison's The Physiognomy of Mental Diseases. Um, I show you one of Morrison's original drawings from his publication, and then two very large sketches, which are large enough, again, to be hung up behind the lecturer or speaker and it would be seen um, from a distance by the audience. When were these done? There's no data on them at all. And what I'm going to suggest to you is only a suggestion. I have no evidence to say this is when they were done. But one suggestion might be um, in 1866. As late as 1880, when Brown is writing his article on mad artists, he talks about a patient who does a number of bold, graphic, magnified delineations and chalk of small plates in Esquirol, Morrison, etc., thrown off from night to night in order to become the illustrations of lectures on alienation the following day. Now, if you know anything about Brown, you will know that he was extremely well organized that nothing happened quickly or instantly. He, um, he prepared for everything meticulously. So why would he talk about illustrations that were done so quickly the night before the lectures? In 1866, um, uh, Laycock fell ill, and someone had to take over his classes um, on medical psychology and mental diseases. And Brown was the man who did that. Now, he already would have had um, the Bartholomew drawings to use, but what if he wanted to illustrate from Morrison and Esquirol and such books? He would need those as well. And Mason was in Crichton at that time. So I would suggest it's possible, but not certain at all, that Brown could have encouraged him to do these drawings um, and use them and then 
As I say, in 1870, when he becomes blind and he stops his lecturing, he would have handed them over to his good friend Leacock. But it's also plausible that Leacock commissioned them at some point. We have these panoramas that um, Michael Barfoot uh, found and was able to lay out and um, have photographed um, for me to use them here. The panorama of Edinburgh in 1878. Um, and he does two of these that still exist, and they are very beautiful, beautifully done. They're very delicate, the colouring, I didn't want to magnify, intensify the colouring, this is the colouring that you can see here, beautifully recorded. Um, and this is him saying, much later on, I've been a student of art and a lover of nature all my life, and that comes through in these drawings. This is another one with a view of the Firth of Forth from Castle Craig Hill, and again, very delicately done, and he's itemized, he's noted what the, uh, the, the landscape details are in this. So he's a man who can do these kind of landscape panoramas, but he also does Christmas cards. Isn't this lovely? We don't know the date uh, of the Christmas card, uh, but the cat with the little birds, um, I think, is absolutely draw uh, charming. Um, the panorama is dated 1874, and that's when, in his case notes, we get uh, the comment he has been drawing and sketching a good deal and is comparatively contented. But he wrote extensively. Um, he was allowed out of the asylum on many, many occasions. He went to exhibitions. Um, his work was reproduced in other books on poetry. Um, and he does these sketches. The drawing is dated August 1888, but the poem was certainly created uh, by 1884 when it's published in a book on Scottish poetry. Um, and this is just the, the poem. I won't read it out to you. But the fact is that he uses his literary and his artistic abilities together very often. We also have, in rather poor condition, some drawings as late as 1893 of James V attacked at Cramon Brig. Why he actually does that subject, we're not very clear. Um, but there's two of them, slightly different, recording the same event here. And at the same time as we're, I'm showing you these drawings, I want to remind you that he never recovers from his illness. And in 1901, Dr. Clouston describes him um, as ha being a Jekyll and Hyde character. His Jekyll was courteous, intelligent, grateful, and as kind-hearted a gentleman as anyone could see going around the city. His Hyde was suspicious, delusional, vain, and a vituperating man. And to be reminded that while artwork can be created, it doesn't mean that these patients are always healthy and all always sane. And finally, the images of his phases of the moon here um, in one of the, the volumes, the perpetual moon dial. But we know Clouston tells he invented while here a world clock by which anyone could tell the time in any latitude or longitude and patented it. And actually, he distributed at least 20 of these. They were requested, some of them sent abroad and used in some of the schools at the time. So he was a very clever, creative man, close to a genius, uh, Clouston said. He was a poet, an inventor, and a wit, and our most notable inmate, he was described described as. Um, but he died at the Royal Edinburgh Asylum on the 2nd of September 1901. 
And that just gives you an idea of some of the artwork was, that was produced. Much, of course, must, must have been lost uh, over the sands of time. Some of the artwork was produced on commission, sometimes by the superintendents, but more often than not, it was the patients who were encouraged and certainly allowed to, to create works of art during their time in confinement. And this is the development that will lead into artist therapy and today um, we have the development of art psychotherapy as well. So thank you very much ladies and gentlemen and I, I'd like to acknowledge the following people for the lecture. Thank you. Um, yes, Bartholomew, William, William Bartholomew. I think he's just wonderful. Um, the variety of work that he does, so much of it looks very sane, very normal. You wouldn't imagine he was in an asylum. And then I love the ones where he just pours out whatever he's thinking at the time, but he does it with great skill and dexterity. So um, I think he's my favourite. Uh, and you, you mentioned the, um, the gap between the private and the pauper parts of the hospital. Yes. Was most of the art that you've come across produced in the private part, or is that not the case? Well, that's actually a very interesting question, and I should have uh, mentioned that. In the Crichton collection, almost all the artwork is done by the private patients, those who are paying and only a little of the artwork, some Bartholomew moves between private and pauper, is done by the pauper patients. But very interestingly, at Royal Edinburgh Asylum, the vast majority of what is surviving is done by the pauper patients. Now, whether that means more was done there, or whether it means that the private patients took their art away with them, when they left or their family took it when they died is not clear, but it shows two different aspects of the art being produced. So it, we maybe shouldn't assume that what happens at Crichton is the absolute standard. The reverse is true. The majority of patients are the pauper patients uh, at Edinburgh. Um, we've got a question up there. Uh, yes, um, I was just wondering what the extent to which um, these artworks were influenced by contemporary um, art movements. Um, I would, obviously, it's not contemporary, but I was struck that some of the um, Bartholomew works were quite, not, not reminiscent, but maybe present of some of the pop art stuff there, particularly the kind of cake day piece of the 20th century. So were um, these artists in tune with uh, contemporary art movements? Um. It, well, they were actually because within the library at the Royal Edinburgh Asylum, um, they had access to the journals of the day, and we find many of them will be inspired by the, particularly the art journal. That seems to be the main source. But the Illustrated London News is a key source 
uh, for inspiration for them as well. So they'll be very aware of current events um, and developments in art, and they have access, uh, many of them will have access to the Royal Scottish Academy annual exhibitions. We know Mason regularly went, and indeed he did reviews of these exhibitions. So where they were allowed out of the asylum, sometimes on day parole, um, they would have access to that, as they did in Crichton, they had the exhibitions in um, in Dumfries as well. So they would have known the current developments in art. Some of them knew about pre-Raphaelitism, for example. Um, but it's mainly, most of them seem to be inspired by the illustrations in the journals and newspapers and magazines of the day. And the Bartholomew patient portraits, were they, were they always being done to illustrate specific conditions um, and is it you know is it some of them look quite ordinary kind of drawings to me of people and I wasn't sure exactly were they caricatured in any way or was it were they life like drawings that it's difficult to know because we don't know what the patients look like but I think there will be fairly realistic representations otherwise there's not much point in them if if Brown is going to use them for his illustrations of the physiognomy of the insane Brown um, is one of the artists who's very interested in the fact that perhaps you could, by looking at a person, work out what mental disease they were suffering from. Um, and uh, he certainly is very interested in that. I think that's something that most people would find difficult to uh, accept nowadays. But there was a strong feeling that you could study a person's head. He was a phrenologist. He was a, a, one of the great supporters of phrenology as well. Yeah, that, I suppose it would be tempting to exaggerate the features it, in that it could well be. I mean, we really don't know. There are no photographs of these patients, so we don't know. Um, but I think if I was Brown, I'd be asking for a realistic representation. They may be slightly simplified, but they are realistic. Um, otherwise, there's not much point you, if you firmly believe um, that the fact that you can tell from the faces what type of illness they've got or the shape of their head, then um, the, the first priority would be to make them fairly realistic. They were not used diagnostically in the case notes. I've read through the case notes of all the, the patients, and they weren't in that uh, sense. But I think the surviving collection um, for the Edinburgh patients um, is uh, connected to the fact that they were used for teaching purposes. And I think many uh, of those who used them, Laycock and Clouston, probably viewed them more as teaching illustrations rather than works of art. 
I think that's the case. And the difference between Crichton and Edinburgh is that Dr. Brown was very, very interested in art. So he collects all sorts of art by his patients, not necessarily just for teaching. There's only a few of them, the Bartholomew ones, that we know were used for teaching. The rest are because they're what his, uh, his patients were doing and they're tangible evidence of moral treatment um, for these patients. So the sketchbooks, I think, survive simply because by the time the patient has died and the family don't want them, they have been become interesting. Uh, by 1880, uh, you've got Lombroso you know, starting to become very interested in the art of the insane. But it's really, uh, in Scotland, we've got these great examples before that. So no, in the case notes, there's nothing like that actually. Um, they seem to be separate from the case notes, but they've maybe been saved by chance or the fact that they live long enough, some of these patients, to be part of that movement where you become very interested in what creative skills the, the insane can produce. No, all we have in the case notes are that his mind is very confused, and that's all we have. Um, I think, as I say, the majority of them, um, the, the, one you're, the ones you're talking about, are really the ones in the, um, in the notebooks that have survived, or the one that Brown had from December 1861, um, and that was probably a present to Brown. We know that Brown went around his patients by the 1850s saying, you know, um, that's a wonderful drawing. Do you mind if I have one? And we get some inscribed saying for, uh, for Dr. Brown, uh, um, this is a present, a gift for Dr. Brown and so on. But in Edinburgh, we don't really have that at all. Um, so no, there isn't uh, anything like that, I'm afraid. No, we have no evidence of that at all. Um, if they had, then the, it's very likely the artist patient would have received the money from them, but we don't know of that happening at all. I, I would hope that Brown paid Bartholomew for the illustrations, but he may have been paid in kind and extra food or you know, extra uh, tobacco or whatever, but uh, we, uh, there's nothing in the case notes to tell us that, I'm afraid. Not really. Uh, Richard Dad is an exception because he was a well-established artist before he went insane. Um, and his artwork, we know from recent research, was known within a small circle round Bethlehem. If you knew the superintendents or the staff there, you knew he was producing work. And many of them were acquired by Morrison and uh, several of the other staff. And a few, just a handful, were displayed in his lifetime. But they wouldn't have been seen as worthwhile. And indeed, 
Um, and in, uh, an artist who's gone insane, is it really worthwhile collecting his work at all? He's insane. Even Dr. Brown, the great collector of art, calls it the pseudo art of the insane because it's not quite art, is it, somehow, because their mind isn't, um, isn't focused and correct. Um, so in Dad's lifetime, his pictures were probably either given away or sold for very little monetary value. But they have acquired that because in the 20th century, we've got this great uh, interest in the art of the insane, and it's really become um, you know, such a, a powerful force in more recent years. So anything by Dad suddenly, particularly if it's actually painted after his admission to Bethlehem or to Broadmoor, becomes uh, of great monetary value. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.